0: Venture, it's great to see you. Those of you who are in the room, I love seeing you today. I know some of you are joining us online, and I'm grateful that you're with us today as well. Hey, uh, as Daniel just mentioned, this is the last week of this seven-week series on rebuilding through the book of Nehemiah. I've dug this study personally as I've gotten to dive in a little bit uh, deeper in my Bible and a specific, uh, you know, story specific book of the Bible, I've really dug that. Um, And I'm going to mourn that we don't get to just have construction materials laying around on the platform as well. We've kind of been building each week. I'm also mourning, uh, some of these are my personal tools that I brought in, and I don't know about your house, but my house, there's a honey-do list, and I'm going to lose my excuse. Well, babe, I can't do that uh, because my tools, some of them are on the platform, and I need them there. I need them there. I can't do that. can't swing a hammer, right? That didn't fly. It didn't work. Hey, I want to pile on, if I can, real quick uh, to what Daniel was just saying uh, and encourage you, next week, don't miss, that's going to be a great week uh, in the life of our church. And to celebrate David well, both that morning and that afternoon, let me also share this. Some of you have been asking me, well, how are we doing in the process of hiring his role? After he leaves and that role is vacant, then what? Well, know that we've been working on that and I have it, well, the best of times, the worst of times, that, that novel, I feel that about this. I, I'm, I'm sad because I'm going to miss David. His office is actually right next to mine, and I, I'm just going to miss David. Uh, who he is, what he does, sad. But I'm also encouraged. You should know that there has been a great response. People want to work at our church. We've had 39 applicants for that role. And actually, just last week, a week well, a week ago Monday, I did seven Zoom interviews, and I would say quality candidates. We've got some folks that I'm encouraged by that process. So I hope you're encouraged as well. Please be praying for that. Pray for David as we uh, celebrate his retirement well next week. Pray for uh, that Role, pray for uh, the opportunity for hiring moving forward. Please lift that up in your prayers. So this week, uh, the title of the message in this rebuilding series is, is true revival. I hear that, and I feel like some kind of a George Beverly Shea song should be playing in the background. That makes me think of Billy Graham. That word has a bit of a an old-timey vibe to it, but this is a Jesus word. This is a spiritual word. We see this happening in the book of Nehemiah in a big way, especially the text that we're gonna study today. Actually, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up to Nehemiah chapter six. If you don't have a Bible with you and you want to use that Bible that's in This seat underneath, the seat in front of you, Uh, go ahead and pull that out. I think I'm on page 481 in that Bible, page 481. I wanna talk about revival. We started this series talking about revivals. We talked about how through the, 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 the lens of the history of our country, there have been a series of revivals. We go all the way back to like the Puritan era, Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. There was a series of revival, a series of renewal a series of, of just great things happening as people turn their hearts and attentions to God during that era. You skip ahead, there have been all kinds of seasons through the life of our country. Post-Civil War, there was a big season of revival. People like Billy Sunday, Dwight L. Moody. God used it in amazing ways to push his kingdom forward as people turned their hearts and attention closer to him. The Azusa Street revivals on the west coast, early 1900s. Skip ahead to right after World War II, there was a season of revival. I just mentioned Billy Graham, think him during that era. Skip ahead to the 60s, there was the Jesus movement. Some people have even said, you know that season where we had promise keepers, people standing up and saying, I pledge my heart to God during that, that was a season of renewal and revival in our culture. I want to define if I can't revival before we dive in too deeply. uh, These are a series of Christian thinkers who have shared this is their view of how they would uh, define a season of revival. J.I. Packer says, God's quickening visitation of his people. So, God's showing up in our midst, touching their hearts and deepening his work of grace in their lives. That's a pretty good definition. Check this one out. Robert Coleman said, The awakening or quickening of God's people to their true nature and purpose. True nature. This is really what you were designed for. I like that. Charles Finney said, The return of the church from her backslidings. And the conversion of sinners. So revival should be not just inside the walls of the church. We're studying the walls of Jerusalem, the gates of Jerusalem during this series. Not just insiders, but outsiders as well. Interesting. Richard Owen Roberts said, an extraordinary movement of the Holy Spirit producing extraordinary results. The Holy Spirit is involved in this. I like that. Duncan Campbell said, this is all about a community saturated with God. I don't know about you, but this season that we have, we're stepping out of, I just feel hope as we come out of this pandemic era. I'm ripe for that. I think our culture is ripe for that. The work of the Holy Spirit in restoring the people of God to a more vital spiritual life, witness, and work by prayer and the word, God's word, after repentance in crisis for their spiritual decline. I was just saying that. I feel like we've lived through a season of crisis. What can we grab from this? And recognize the spiritual nature of this. And how do we turn the ship into the winds that God is blowing moving forward. There's a distinction, by the way, between words that I've been using just kind of synonymously there. I've been talking about revival and awakening. Let's define some of these words. Renewal. This is when God touches the heart of a single individual. He renews your heart, he renews your heart, he renews my heart. There's kind of a personal nature to this. Let's broaden it a little bit, though. From renewal, we'll look at revival. That's the word I'm using a lot today. When God touches a community of faith, and it would be my prayer as we lean into, again, the winds that God's blowing us forward, that it's not just a personal thing. God's working in your heart through renewal and my heart, but that as a community of faith, we could sense God's doing something in our midst, and we get to be a part of it. And oh, if you want to dream big, by the way, we're going to end this sermon time before we respond and worship at the end of this. We're We're going to spend some time in prayer. Would you pray for personal renewal? Would you pray for revival for our church? And if you're bold, oh my goodness, if you want to pray big prayers, check this out. Awakening, this is when the wider society is impacted. Not just individuals, not just a community of faith, but what if God shows up in our midst in such a powerful way that we we can't contain the story and it leaks out. And there are people outside the walls of this community of faith that we can reach and bring into the saving grace of what Jesus is doing in our lives. Okay, so if your Bible is open uh, and you're on page 481, I'm in Nehemiah chapter 6, let's see what's happened. So the wall, that's what we've been aiming at this whole time, the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul, this is a month, in 52 days. They were rocking and rolling. The hammers are swinging, the walls are going up. Actually, they're stacking stones to make it happen. 52 days, that is amazing. When all of our enemies heard about this, the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence. We talked about this last week. We want to move from self-confidence to God confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. God has shown up. Yay. Yay, God. Okay, so they've rebuilt the walls. They're done, right? No. No, we get hyper-focused sometimes on what we do for God. But when they got done doing that, the real work began. The real work of rebuilding their society and rebuilding their culture. Chapter 7, after that verse, lists a list of the exiles that returned from Babylon. And I don't know about you, but I'm tempted when I'm reading through my Bible, I get to like chapter 5 of Genesis, that list of genealogy, I'm tempted just to skip right over it. If you're reading through Nehemiah, don't skip over chapter 7 because this, these are the, the charter members. These are the, the founding folks. These are the people who rolled up their sleeves and God used them in amazing ways to begin to rebuild the culture that he had been designing and creating for a very long time. They're on the ground floor. Now, not to be overdramatic, dramatic. But I thought about that a little bit as I was studying this text. Again, not to be over dramatic, but I feel like we're coming out of a season of, um, well, it's been hard the last couple of years. We've all felt that. And I will never forget some pivotal conversations I had with some of you. During that season when we had just kind of, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? The church needs to kind of decentralize a bit and we're all in our homes and we're trying to do it virtually, exclusively during that season a couple of years ago. And then we kind of came back and some of you trickled back and we had what we were calling viewing parties. We put that same thing, what we were doing online, we put it up in the room and some of you, a few of you came and kind of sat set this, You're just kind of sticking your toe in the water. And it was in the middle of that season, I'll never forget a couple of pivotal conversations. What do we do now? What's the next right step? And I remember a few of you, after one of those, we gathered out here and we just walked around the building outside. And we were kind of, what if we tried to do this thing outside? People are afraid of this airborne virus and coming inside a building. What? It's summertime. We're coming up on summertime. What if we did something? And then some of you got involved with building a platform out there. And we did a season of worship on the lawn. I just had some folks around my table a couple of weeks ago that are fairly new to our church. And they said, hey, That was the season we checked out Venture for the very first time. We were kind of sticking our toe in the water and we were like, this is the church we want to be a part of. We saw great things through that. We saw the church family doing life very well together during that season. I'll never forget some of those pivotal conversations as we were coming back from a COVID exile, if you will. But can you imagine what it would have felt like to be the people that are listed in chapter 7 of Nehemiah? And on the ground floor of rebuilding this new movement of God that he is building, he's going to make things happen coming out of this season. I've used this before, told you that my mom taught me when I was a kid. We rewrote that little church nursery rhyme to say this is the church building, this is the church steeple, open the doors and the church is the people. That's pretty important. It's not see all the people. It's not this is a church. It's This is a church building. Because this is just a building we, the church, come to church. The church shows up when we get here. I, uh, I found some blueprints of this building. A lot of times we get this backwards a little bit. We hyper-focus on the building when we should be hyper-focused on our hearts, a renewal of our faith, growing the body of Christ, that's really the people up in faith. I was digging through some of these blueprints, if, you were, if you're curious, they're right here. These are 20-plus years old. These are the blueprints that were used to build this space that we're sitting in right now. And if you look real closely, I'm not going to unroll it because then it's just be cumbersome and difficult to look at. But you can kind of see the outline shape. Here's the parking lot that many of you probably parked in today. Here's the outline of the building that you're sitting in right now, where I'm standing. Oh, what am I right about? There. And if you look closer at the blueprints, you can see the front elevation. Here's that cross that we've got out there on the brick wall. It's Woodland Springs Christian Church. That's who was commissioning the design of this. And I think about how our church has gone from those days, that era, to who we are today and how God is still building us. It's really not about the building. It's about the movement of God inside the people. But I want to borrow on this image. I want to borrow on this idea of uh, blueprints. And I want to share with you, if you're taking notes today, I'm going to share with you four pillars to build revival on. Let's call it a a revival blueprint. Four pillars. We're pulling these straight out of the text of Nehemiah, and you can build revival on these four pillars. Here's what happened. First of all, there was a realization of what is really important. The people in the day of Nehemiah, they, they rediscovered what's really important. Let's read it together. Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 1. After the wall had been rebuilt, and Nehemiah is first person talking here. He's saying, and I had set the doors in place. The gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites were appointed. That means they weren't in place yet. So like they held mass auditions for uh, worship pastors. And people that are going to be leading the people in worship. We are going to be worshiping our God in a corporate sense now. We need to have some people who are invested into this process. Again, there's a realization of what is important. I took a screenshot. I thought about this this past week. It was uh, Valentine's Day. I hope you celebrated a great Valentine's uh, Day together with your significant other. How many of you have seen the video, it's not about the nail? Anybody seen this? Do you recognize this? If you haven't watched this. Just make yourself a mental note right now, this afternoon, Google it, watch it, it's awesome. Actually, this screenshot I pulled, I think this video had been watched like 22 million times on YouTube and there's a whole bunch of versions of it. People have pirated it and shared it. It's hilarious. It's classic male-female dynamic. He's looking at her, he's trying to solve the problem, right. The problem is she's got a nail sticking out of the middle of her forehead. Right, the uh, the nail gun went a little awry, and she's got a real problem. She's complaining about a headache. My head hurts. He's like, I, I think, I think it might have something to do. It's not about the nail. I just want you to listen to me. I want you to hear my problems. Don't try to solve my problems. Does that sound vaguely familiar to any of you? Maybe if you've been married for a while. I love that video. Watch it. You laugh. It's hilarious. It was never really about the walls. Going back to Nehemiah, it was never really about the walls, at least not exclusively. Rather, it's about the heart. God doesn't want your obedience exclusively. He wants your heart and he wants your mind. He wants the work that you do for him, oh, like building the walls, like serving in the nursery, like serving as a small group leader. I don't know what you do for him. Maybe you've got some ministry out in your neighborhood that you're doing. But it's not so much about that. It's not just that. But he also wants your obedience. He wants your love and your devotion and your obedience. This is not just in Nehemiah. By the way, this is borne out elsewhere in scripture. Jesus described the people of his time that got hyper-focused on what they do for God. He called them a stiff-necked people. He said that a lot to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He said, you've missed it. It's not just about what you do for God, it's about your heart for God as well. Actually, he described them as whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside. Dead on the inside. I don't know if you've ever seen a picture of that in Jesus' day. This is what you would have looked at. Well, you can see it actually today. I took this photograph. By the way, this picture is taken from David's palace. So you can still walk around the ruins of King David, King Solomon's palace they would have lived in. This is uh, it's called the Ophel, and they're looking across this way. This is the Mount of Olives. And let me zoom in a little bit. Let me show you what you're looking at there on the hillside. All of these tombs, many of those date back to the first century. White, like white limestone, they kind of gleam in the sunlight. Jesus standing over here on the temple mount looking across can say, They're just a bunch of whitewashed tombs. Pretty to look at, but there's death inside there. Let's zoom in, another photograph. I happened to be there one day when this gentleman was there for a funeral. He's an Orthodox Jewish man. They're still burying people there in that space. Zoom in a little bit, look in the other direction. This is standing on the Mount of Olives, looking back at Jerusalem. This is the wall, the retaining wall that holds up the Temple Mount. This space right here, this is pretty cool, that's known as the golden gate. We've been talking about gates around Jerusalem the last several weeks. It's interesting, this golden gate got sealed up several times during history. Usually the Muslim uh, armies would come in and take over Jerusalem from the Jewish folks and uh, they would seal this gate up because there's a prophecy that dates back to the time of Christ or shortly thereafter that when Jesus returns, He'll walk in through the Golden Gate, and so they've sealed it up. Actually, one of the conquerors, Saladin, about five or six hundred years ago, they started burying their dead, dead, the Muslim dead, here outside this gate, so that a rabbi wouldn't be able to walk through that to go in. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? That's the Golden Gate. Let's keep reading. We're back in Nehemiah, back uh, several hundred years before that moment. Nehemiah chapter seven, verse. Uh, 73, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Let's pause here just for a second. Ezra, we haven't talked about him a whole lot. He's just shown up in the story. But actually, back in the day, in the Masoretic texts, before, oh, probably five or six hundred years ago, even in the Latin Vulgate, so not long after the time of Christ, the first time the Greek text was translated into the language of the people, Jerome did that. Even in that era, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book together. One book. They've just been separated, actually, recently, the last five or six hundred years. There is some evidence that that separation would have happened long before that. But regardless, Ezra and Nehemiah have a ministry that's kind of working together. And we see him show up on the scene here. Ezra, as a spiritual leader, Nehemiah has been leading some of the administration work that's going on. Ezra's going to step up and he's going to do a powerful work for God right now. He's going to bring out the law of Moses. These are the first five books of your Bible. The Torah, the Jews would have called it. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Numbers and Deuteronomy. And for the first time in a long time, they're going to hear these words read. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 2, let's keep reading. So on the first day of the seventh month, that's important to note. It's the first day. There's a timeline that's unpacking here. Ezra, the priest, brought the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. There are kids in the crowd. If they were old enough to understand what's being read to them, they were there, they were present. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate. Hold on to that thought, that location. In the presence of the men, the women, and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. There's a realization of what's important, right? It's about to hit them between the eyes. Can you feel it coming? Here's the second pillar of revival it's feeling ravenous for the things of God now can I confess to you when I first wrote this outline I had revival then I had realization and then I had hungry like oh that doesn't work I've got an r word thing going on here so I came up with ravenous Actually, if I can confess to you, that was the third word I used. The second word, as I read the text closely, was the word hangry. They weren't just hungry for the things of God. Some of you have a spouse. You know what this is when their blood sugar drops a little bit. They go from hungry to hangry. We see something going on here in the text. It's almost like they're not just hungry for God's word, but they're ravenous. They get hangry. They're motivated. Let's not just listen to this. Let's do something with it ever been hungry after you start eating? You realize you were hungrier than you thought. I'll never forget, we were hiking in Zion National Park, and when we were, uh, the kids were little, our go-to meal was PB&J. Oh, I love a good white bread, PB&J. We had been hiking, I didn't think I was hungry. But after that first bite, Don, can I have another one? And another one, Dad might have eaten the kids' food that day. They get hungry. Their hunger motivates them toward action. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 5. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them, and as he opened it, the people all stood up. They stood up, honoring God's word being read aloud. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands. We just did that in worship. And they responded, Amen, amen, yes. Yes, we're hungry, give us more. Then they bowed down and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. What they're hearing motivates them to action. Let's keep reading. The Levites instructed the people in the law. While the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being said. They're hearing the word. They're being taught over. This is really what we're reading, what it means. We're reading through the book of Leviticus, for example, and this is what was going on with our nation, our ancestors during that season. This is why this would have been so significant to them. This is why it's significant to us now. It's kind of like what we do today with preaching the word and teaching the word. I've been showing you maps all along here. I want to show you the significance of the water gate. Perhaps you remember a few weeks ago, Nehemiah, when he first got to Jerusalem, he did a midnight ride. He left the valley gate and he went around here and back around to the water gate and then he went back around. We took that map and a few weeks ago we overlaid it over this map. He left and he walked out into this valley system down here and then he came back around and then he went back in this way. There are some clues in the text. It's really interesting. It seems like maybe, maybe just maybe, the Watergate, when they did the work of rebuilding the walls around here and the different gates, the Watergate maybe didn't need to be reworked. Check this out. Nehemiah, chapter 3, let's go back a few chapters. Palau, son of Uzziah, worked opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Padiah son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on the hill of the Ophel, that's where I was standing when I took that picture a bit ago that I just showed you, next to David's palace, made repairs up to a point opposite the water gate, toward the east and the projecting tower. But it never in the text does it say that they did any work actually on the The water gate. Why? Well, presumably, I mean, it's possible, this is my opinion, but it's possible that when Nebuchadnezzar's armies came to conquer about 70 years before this moment, that's the one gate in Jerusalem that didn't get destroyed. And I wonder if that became symbolic for the people of God. It's interesting, water, well, water gets compared a lot in scripture to the word of God. We can look at this gate from the point of view of God's word. There's a close tie in scripture between water and the word. For example, Ephesians chapter 5 says that Jesus cleansed the church by the washing with water through the word. In the Psalms, we see that water is cleansing by the word. Psalm 119 verse 9 says this. It's possible that it's symbolic that this gate didn't need repairs because the word of God doesn't need to be repaired. Actually, there are cautions against that. At the very end of your Bible, if you went to Revelation chapter 22, it ends this way, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, God's Word, the Bible, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to them the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share of the tree of life and the holy city. He's talking about heaven, which are prescribed in this book. It's a big deal. This is why this is one of our core values. My goodness, we're people who stand on the authority of scripture. But God said, my word shall never fail. The word of God was subject to the attack of Satan all the way from the beginning even to this present day. But God says, my words won't pass away. Your word, O oh God, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. So there's this group gathered together next to the water gate, waiting for a word from God. I'm reminded of Jesus when he says, not far from there, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, Blessed are those who are hungry. Blessed are those who are hunger, and they thirst for righteousness' sake, for they will be filled. You see the people, they're gathered, they're hungry. Let's read the text, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. Why is he saying that? Well, because the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Can you imagine that? It moved them in emotion. For the first time in two generations, the word of God was read out loud. As a result, there was conviction. There was sorrow. There was an understanding of what the Israelite people had missed for over, get this, 70 years. God used his words to bring the people to a realization of their sinful nature. And for the time, they missed experiencing him in their midst. Nehemiah and Ezra, the priest, recognized what the grief that was unleashed caused among the people. And they urged God's people not to mourn, but to be joyful because they were entering into a season of feast and festival that would usher in for them the day of atonement. Man, we're fortunate today. We have access to God's word in a whole bunch of ways. We've got apps on our phone. But maybe we're more Bible illiterate today than we've we've ever been in recent years. Can I encourage you that at the same time, we're in an unprecedented time of pandemic, maybe even social and civil unrest. By cracking open our Bibles and reading God's word, we can discern the season in which we're living today. The text says, don't be grieved by what you may find there. Be joyful. Actually, in verse 10, it says, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Then the passage continues in verse 12. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them ravenous, hangry. Here's the third pillar it's a recognition of what's missing. As they're reading, as they're hearing the word read over them, they come to a realization of what they've been missing that they didn't even know they were missing. Check this out in Nehemiah chapter 8. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. They found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded through Moses, that the Israelites were supposed to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they would proclaim his word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. It's a quote in a passage, Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles and palms and shade trees to make booths as it is written. Well, where is it written? Well, they had just heard it read over them. This is from Leviticus chapter 23, which says this. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, On the 15th of this seventh month, have you been tracking along in the calendar that they're in? It was the first month, the day of the month, then the second day of the month. The text prescribes on the 15th of this seventh month is the feast of booths for seven days to the Lord. And they realize where they're at. And they realize what they're supposed to be doing right now in this calendar. There are three fall feasts in Israel. Uh, One of them is Rosh Hashanah. This is the Jewish New Year. Ten days later is Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement. And then five days after that is the one that we're looking at right here. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes called the Feast of Booths. So this is what they did. Let's keep reading. So the people went out. And they brought back branches and they built themselves booths on their own roofs in their courtyards in the courts of the house of God and in the square by the water gate and the one of the gate of Ephraim. The whole company that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. That's a novel thought, isn't it? Isn't that a novel thought? They read something in the Bible and then they did it. They read something and they said, oh, God said to do it, I'll do it. Oftentimes somebody will call me or send me an email and say, hey, can I come in and talk to a pastor? And I say, yeah, I'd love to do that. I'd love to sit down with you in my office. And usually somewhere in there I hear words like, hey, I want counseling. And I'll say, oh, listen, I'm not a counselor. That's not what I do. I'm not really trained for that. What I do, I call it pastoral guidance. What I want to do with you is simply open up God's word. Let's see what he's already said on this topic. The thing that you're wrestling with right now is there's something from scripture that we can lean into and nine times out of ten I find, well, sometimes I do refer them on to professional counseling to work on emotional health kind of stuff. But oftentimes you kind of know what God's told you to do, right? You just need assurance that this is in fact what he's calling you toward. Let me ask you this question. When's the last time you did that? When's the last time you read something in the Bible and then you actually did it? When's the last time that you ruthlessly decided to tell the truth, even when it cost you something? Because the Bible says very clearly, the ninth commandment, do not lie, do not bear false witness. When the last time, when's the last time that you've chosen not to tell that white lie? Because God commands it, even when it costs you something. When's the last time that you took the call to purity seriously? There are purity commandments, right? When's the last time... You chose not to take that extra step with your girlfriend. Because God, God's word has called you to purity. When's the last time that you decided not to move in with him? Because the Bible says so. You read scripture and it moves you to action. When's the last time, oh, the God of the age is consumerism. When's the last time you struck down an idol in your life? Martin Luther, the reformer Reformer Martin Luther, used to say that the first two commandments, have no other God before God and don't make a graven image. Those are all about idolatry. And then the the next, the last eight are all about idolatry as well. Because when you choose to lie, you're putting a false God in place of God. When you decide to covet your neighbor's stuff or steal your neighbor's stuff, you're putting that in front as a functional Savior in front of your relationship with God, and that's idolatry. When's the last time you've read the Bible and said, oh, this is what it's called me to do, so I'm going to do what it says. They read the Bible, and then they did it. Check out the results. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, this is like several hundred years before this, almost a 1,000. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, as they entered into the promised land until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. Why? Because both parties, both the group of their ancestors that were coming into the promised land and this group of people right here, both parties knew what it was like to be saved from something and saved to something. Their ancestors were saved from Egypt to the promised land. The people in the days of Nehemiah were saved from Babylon back to the promised land. They knew what it was like to be saved from something to something. I have an old worship pastor friend who talks about, I can always tell. When I look out and I'm leading worship, I can tell the folks who know that they've been saved from something. It's on their faces. It's in their body, language, their posture when they call out to God in those moments of worship. They know what they've been redeemed from. And they know what they've been redeemed to. Day after day, the text goes on from the first day to the last. Ezra read from the book of the law of God. They celebrated the feast for seven days. And on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. They got together. And they celebrated what's known as the Day of Atonement. Where the sins of the people are put on a scapegoat and it's sent outside the camp. There's confession, public confession of sin. They're moved to action. The whole chapter 9 of Nehemiah is all about that. You can read that on your own later. Which brings us to the fourth pillar. The fourth pillar as we look at a revival blueprint is removal of sin. Which begins with a declaration of this is what's wrong. This is what's broken in my life. I'm going to invite you to read through chapter 9 later. Read on into chapter 10. You see them confessing the sins of the people. They start way back in Exodus. And they end with that day in front of the water gate. This is what we've done, God. This is what we've done that's breaking your heart. We confess it. We give it over to you. There's a list of who was there? They sign the document. Then they list the solemn promises that they're making to God. Everything from observance of feast days that they had missed, that they didn't, they didn't see that they're supposed to be doing, to holy marriage commitments, those are mentioned there, to tithing, to giving God what He's already said is His, to serving the temple commitments of families. And you can read about this through the end of chapter 10, which ends with these words chapter 10, verse 39. We will not neglect the house of our God. We're leaning into this moment. This is revival. This is renewal. We want to change the culture, not just inside these walls that we've rebuilt, but outside the walls of these, uh, uh, these walls as well. I was um, on a plane not too long ago. I flew down to Honduras to shoot a video that you got to see if you were here that week. This is the takeoff as we were leaving. You can see the cloud cover above here. You can see a row of people here. The reason I shot the video was because it's a little bit disconcerting. This is known as one of the most dangerous airports in the world. At the end of the airport, there's like, you just like it drops off. And there's a group of people that just kind of gather there to like, I guess, cheer on your death. I don't know. They're like watching to see what's going to happen. And so I saw them there and I shot this video. And then after we got up through that cloud cover, I took this picture. You can see the cloud cover that we came through. And then as I'm looking out the window, oh, my goodness, I realized we're flying over the part of the world that y'all go to for vacation because it's gorgeous there. We're flying over the Caribbean. And there are these beautiful things as I zoom in I can see. And then I looked around the plane. Everybody's on their phone. Everybody's in their book. And they're missing. Oh, my goodness. I was... We're coming up through cloud cover. It feels dark and you know dangerous down here. Now we're up here and it's absolutely gorgeous. I think this happened in this moment we just talked about that we just read through in Nehemiah. These are the people that, when God prophesied to Abraham, He said, "I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore." And as they're reading the text, they're realizing this is their identity. This is who they are. This is who God has designed them to be, church. We're called the bride of Christ. It's who he's made us to be. How are you doing in that right now? Would you stand up with me? Just like the people in Nehemiah's day that stood up, and confessed their sins. As you stand up, could I encourage you to grab that little cup of communion that was sitting on the seat when you came in. I want to have a moment of public confession. I'm not going to make you confess your sins out loud. You confess them before God. The bride of Christ. We're called to shine. We're called to be radiant. Is there something that needs confessed? Is there something in your life right now, it's personal, there's a renewal moment that needs to happen in this moment. Is there something that's a little bit broader than that? It's what we are guilty of to those outside these walls. They can't see Jesus when they're looking through us because we're getting in the way. Is there something corporate that needs to be confessed? Reviled. because we're aiming for an awakening. I'm going to give us margin right now. Confess our sins because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. and He provides righteousness in response. I'll start the prayer time and then you're in it. Maybe during this worship season, as we worship in response, maybe, maybe there's a posture that gets taken as you recognize as far as the east is from the west, that's how, how far he takes his sins away from us. Let me get it started with confession. God, we're grateful. We know we sin. We don't want to jump too quick to forgiveness because we want you to hear our sins. So as we confess right now, we pray you hear.